are in Exodus chapter 17 on Amalek. But I want to back up just a little. Let's just ask God to bless us. Lord, we thank you for this day. We just thank you for the rain we've been having. It just cuts back on our water bill so wonderfully, and our ground needs it so badly. And so we thank you for it, Lord, even in spite of some of the problems it brings of flooding and all, but we thank you. And Lord, we ask that you would bless your word today. You promised to bless it. Above your name, you say. You magnify your word above your name. That's hard to believe, but this is the living word of God and it's wonderful. The written word, the living word is Jesus, but it's all about him. So today as we uh, look in Exodus, we know it's our example book. That's what Paul said. All the Old Testament, all these stories are examples for us today. So may we find these examples and may we live lives that are pleasing to you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. amen. We're in chapter 17, verse eight of Exodus. But we've been seeing what wonderful provisions that God does for his children, even though they're complaining. What I can't is I keep going over this and over this with you and with myself and going over the story again about imagine God opening up the sea and walking mm -hmm. through on dry land on this raised up section that's in the Gulf of Aqaba where ships can't even go there. And why God would use that space for them to go across into the promised land. Um, because the Gulf of Aqaba there, as we talked about where they went through, is one of the deepest places in all the earth, like 1,200 feet deep. So how could they, if they had to go, go marching all the way down to that and up? No, but on the way up, and Solomon knew this, and some of his ships were wrecked on at this place. But there's a land bridge in the Gulf of Aqaba, right opposite this, this Nueva Beach, where God, he didn't take them the easy way down in Midian which is what Moses knew. He knew the easy way because he'd gone there on dry land when he killed the Egyptian when he was a young fellow and left. That so you can go from Goshen up here, Egypt's over here, and the Gulf is over here with two arms of it. This is the Sinai Peninsula here that they think, a lot of things. Yeah, that's wrong. That was still Egyptian territory if you in your map. But on this side, it's still Sinai, only it's called Horeb the Mount Horeb, and all through the Old Testament, Horeb is H-O-R-E-B, called the Mountain of God. So God took them because he wanted to open the sea. He wanted to destroy the Egyptians for them. And so he took them, not the easy way that Moses went on dry land all the way down there, but he took them into the wilderness of Sinai, which is that middle part where there were Egyptian encampments. So if they couldn't have stayed there. The Egyptians would have caught them. But so he took them down there, but then in this wilderness, there's a huge Nueva Beach, is the name of it. And it's enough for three million people and all their flocks. So it had to be a big place for them to go. So they went were there and with the pillar of cloud that covered them and the pillar of fire by night, by day they were covered, by night they were. And so there was a, a separation between them and the Egyptians, but they get down here and then they see, um, they know that the Egyptians are coming after them. And so they're complaining and complaining. And so 
God said to Moses, put your rod over the sea and see what happens. And so he opened this, right there at that Nueva beach, he struck the sea and the sea rolled back and here's this land bridge. It's down a ways, maybe 200 feet, but not a thousand feet. So they went down and up into Assyria. Now how do we know it's Assyria instead of that? Because I want you to be sure that Galatians 4, remember that, that it talks about the allegory about Hagar and Sarah. Tell me, you who desire, verse 21 of chapter 4, who you desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? What does the law really say? It's written that Abraham had two sons, the one by the bondwoman, uh, and that would be Hagar, and the other by the free woman. So they represent two things. Hagar represents the law, you're slaves to that, and then the other one is free woman, grace. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise. See, God had promised Abraham a son that would be in the line of the Messiah that would come, not through the slave woman, but through his wife, which things are symbolic. They're symbols. They're an object lesson in the Old Testament, just like things in Exodus are. And I've found so many things that I think will answer your question about hardened hearts. I looked it up. If you have a Ryrie Study Bible, every place it mentions hardened hearts, uh, many of them are in here. I'm going to show you a few, and then you can go on and study it yourself. But you harden your own heart. That's mainly it. But anyway, these are symbolic. These are two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage. Now that's what, we haven't come to getting the law yet, but in the 20th chapter of Exodus, the giving of the law is there. And that gendered bondage. Nobody's ever saved by keeping the law. Paul says, we know what sin is by the Ten Commandments. But they're symbolic of two covenants, one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai, where? Look and see, in Arabia. You need to underline that. It's Mount Sinai in Arabia. Mm -hmm. See, now Arabia uh, today, and in Paul's day, but back in Abraham's day, it was Midian. That's where Midian was. In, now it's Saudi Arabia, but you need to know that. So it's Mount Sinai in Arabia, which corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, which is mother of us all. So anyway, that's the thing of where it is, Mount Sinai in Arabia. But I just think how ungrateful they were when they saw this miracle of the water and walking through on dry land and then could see the dead bodies of the Egyptians after the water came back over them. And then they didn't trust him anymore. And so now in chapter 17, they journeyed from the wilderness of sin. According to the commandment of the Lord, sin would be the same as Sinai. The Sino-Japanese, that's where Dr. Morris thinks that the Japanese and the Chinese came from Ham. That's where they get, is the same as Sinai. According to the commandment of the Lord, and camped in Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people contended. Just after they'd seen the miracle, they should have said, well, God, look how he got us away from the Egyptians. He can supply water now. He can make water go back, and he can bring water. 
So they didn't. They contended with Moses and said, give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted for water and the people murmured against Moses and said, why is it you brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord saying, what shall I do? They're not ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Go on before the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel, take also your hand with the rod with which you struck the river, and go. I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it that people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So he called the name of the place striving, Massa, Meribah, because of the contention of the children of Israel and because they tempted the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? But so when the Lord says for Moses, You shall strike the rock. And then we read back here in Numbers, Numbers 20. But so in Numbers, when they're ready to go into the promised land, the children of Israel, the whole congregation, came into the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and the people stayed in Kadesh, and Miriam died there. And there was no water for the congregation, so they're headed up to the Promised Land now. So they gathered together against Moses and Aaron again. See, they just will not learn. And the people contended with Moses and spoke, saying, if only we died when our brethren died before the Lord. That's the one that complained that the earth opened up and swallowed them up because they complained against Moses. Numbers is a wonderful book, too. Why have you brought up the congregation of the Lord into this wilderness that we and our animals should die here? And why have you made us come out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It's not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, nor is there any water to drink. So Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the door of the tabernacle of meeting. They fell on their faces, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the rod, you and your brother Aaron, gather the assembly together, speak to the rock. Now what did he say back here? He said in verse 6 of 17 of Exodus, Strike the rock. You have to do what God says you have to do, exactly. You don't just... Well, I'm going to just go my own way. You do what he said. First he said, strike the rock, which is pictured. Jesus is that rock. And we know that from Paul. He said, that rock is Christ in the First Corinthians 10. And he was only to be stricken once. See, it's a picture that he would die on the cross once. So you don't strike the rock again. So here he is. It, the second time they wanted water, speak to the rock before their eyes, and it will yield its water. Thus you shall bring water for them out of the rock and give drink to the congregation and their animals. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he commanded him, and Moses and Aaron gathered the congregation together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels. See, the flesh is entering into this now with Moses. It's a wonderful, wonderful man, but we're all sinners. Here now, you rebels, must we bring water? Now, who brought the water anyway? God did. Must we bring water for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod. Now, you'd think God would say, I said, I, didn't, I said, speak to the rock. And you hit it twice. I'm not giving you any water. Nope, that isn't the God. And so water came out of the rock even though he disobeyed. Mm -hmm. 
Then Moses lifted his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation and their animals drank. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron. So it's like the Lord called him aside and said, I have something to say to you. Because you did not believe me to hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this congregation into the land which I have given them. This was the water of Meribah, because the children of Israel contended with the Lord, and he was hallowed among them. And this mentions several times as you go through, because Moses did this. The fondest thing, the wish of his heart would be to, to go into the land. And he was leading them out from Egypt and in the 40 years in the desert. Now he's leading them up into the land. And now flesh got in the way and he, he ruined it for himself. So he, when it's time for him to die and Joshua, the book of Joshua, he takes him up to the mountain east of Jerusalem, east of Israel, and said, now you can look at the land. And, you know, it's a flat land, but that, on a high mountain, he could see the whole land. He said, you can see it, but you can't go in. You can see how that really just broke his heart. But we have to do as much as we can. Let's try to do what God says to do. He said, strike the rock back to Exodus, and water will come out of it. The people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders. So he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the contention of the children of Israel and because they tempted the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Now, as we saw also last week about the bread of life. So he's the bread of life, Jesus is. He said the spiritual bread. See, there's physical bread and spiritual bread. He's the bread. That he says if you eat this bread, in other words, eating, drinking, and looking are synonyms of faith. Please write that down and remember it. Eating is flesh. And he said, that's a hard saying. Eating is flesh and drinking is blood. But it means you take him to yourself. You believe in him. Eating, drinking, and looking. How are they cured of snake bite? Looking at the serpent of brass. Nothing else, just, just a glance, a look. And they were healed. So that's believing in God. And then eating the bread is taking him to yourself. He's the bread of life. See, that's like taking him to yourself. He'll provide everything you and I need all of our lives, and he'll provide all of the, the water that we need. He, the, so he's the bread of life here in Exodus 16. And in Exodus 17, he is the water of life. Now then, we see also he's that living water. Dr. McIntosh said, They have tasted the spiritual food and spiritual drink. The spiritual rock was Jesus. Now... Until meeting Amalek, they had nothing to do. God provided the manna. He provided the water. It was all grace. It was, they didn't have to do anything, did they? They had just stood still and watched the Holy Spirit work. Now, after the Holy Spirit comes, now how do we know the water? Jesus said in John chapter 8, we were in John 6 where he said, I am the bread of life. Then he said, I am the water of life in John Eight, but notice what he said. On the last day, it's 37 of John chapter 8, the great day of the feast. Now this would be the Feast of Tabernacles that lasted eight days. Dr. Ryrie says, though it's not mentioned in the Old Testament, the Jews had a ceremony of carrying water from the Pool of Siloam and pouring it into a silver basin by the altar of burnt offering each day for the first seven days of the Feast of Tabernacles. On the eighth day which always pictures eternity. Seven days 
and God does this all through the Bible. There are 7,000 years of human history. There were seven days in a week. They're not eight days, but on the eighth day, well, that looks ahead to after. That looks ahead to the millennium, first of all, and then to eternity. On the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow, out of his most inmost being will flow rivers of living water. Now what does that mean? We know about water in the Old Testament. We know about the Feast of Tabernacles with the drawing of the water. What is this living water? But this he spoke concerning the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is that living water. The Holy Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given. He was active in the world, but he wasn't indwelling until Jesus rose from the dead. He was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. He was given on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. So now, you and I, the minute you believe, Paul says in Ephesians 1, but we might as well turn there. Verse 12 of Ephesians 1, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In Jesus you trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession through the praise of his glory. Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith uh, and love of all the saints, don't cease to thank you and making mention of you in my prayers. So the minute you accept Jesus, now that Jesus has risen from the dead, mm -hmm. the Holy Spirit comes and it's a part of the package. Mm -hmm. He comes to indwell you and God, now he's expecting us to do the fighting. God did everything at first. He did the fighting. He killed Pharaoh. He got rid of the Egyptians. But now that they have, I'll stand on the rock and you drink it. And this is the Holy Spirit now that you would receive. And so then Dr. McIntosh says that they had just stood still and watched God work. Now after the Holy Spirit comes, God fights in us. And so our conflict begins. And so right after he does this and tells about the water coming in, now the conflict begins. Well, you and I know there's a conflict between good and evil. We have an old sin nature, and we have this new nature that he gives us. Well, which one's going to win out? The one we, as we've said before, the sick them to, like the... <laughs> so that's exactly the way it is. If you feed the old sin nature, it's going to be the one that's in charge. And Christians, you know Christians that are out of fellowship, and that's what it means when you're feeding the old sin nature. You're not in fellowship with the Lord, you're in fellowship with your old sin nature and with the devil. Well, anyway, there's a battle, a constant battle every day, but the more you're in the Word of God, the battle lessens and you win. He wants us to be conquerors. You know what Paul said in Romans 8? Um, it says, Verse 37 said, Yet in all these things, the troubles that come, tribulation, distress, persecution, we are more than conquerors 
through him who loved us. I'm persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So once the Holy Spirit comes, we are in a conflict. Now then, that's the picture of it here in verse 17 of Exodus. After he gives them the water, the manna from heaven, and the water out of the rock, now Amalek came. Amalek is a picture of the enemy of God's people all down through the ages. He was a grandson of Esau. Esau didn't particularly love his brother. He wanted to kill him, didn't he? So Amalek's tribe, here's the order, Esau, Eliphaz. So when you read the book of Job and read about Eliphaz was one of Job's friends and he came and told him, what I'm telling you I got by a spirit that passed over me in the night. That's a part of the book of Job. You can tell about Eliphaz. Don't pay attention to him, what he has to say much. Maybe some truth, but not all truth. So Eliphaz, Esau, Eliphaz, and Eliphaz's son was Amalek. And then down through the line, well, then but there's Agag and Haman. But we know all these names. They're all from this same family. And then the Herods. They were Idumeans. They were all from Esau's family. But anyway, uh, Dr. McIntosh mentions all that, but he doesn't mention the Herods. But that's an important thing to see. So he said, Now Amalek came and fought with Israel in Rephidim. And Moses said to Joshua, Choose us some men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses said. Now remember, they'd never fought before. <laughs> they'd been slaves for 400 years in Egypt. And when you have no weapons, you're a slave. You either have a weapon and you aren't a slave, you're a master. And that's why they want to take our weapons away from us today. Mm -hmm. And then you become a slave. I think Abraham Lincoln said, or somebody important said. Anyway. So Joshua did as Moses said to him, and fought with Amalek, and Moses, Aaron, and Hur, and Hur is, he's only mentioned here in one other place, and tradition says he was Miriam's husband, so that, you can take it or leave it. He, Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. So it was when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed, and when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hand became heavy, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on the stone, and Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and the other on the other, and his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. Imagine, that would even then be, they'd be probably paralyzed almost, until the going down of the sun. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this for a memorial. Now, God doesn't forget things either. Write this for a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called its name, The Lord is my banner. See, he will he'll take care of me. For he said, because the Lord is sworn, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. And Saul learned this the hard way in 1 Samuel 15, and it's repeated again in Deuteronomy 26 about that God's gonna have war with him. He keeps repeating it. When Moses gave the second giving of the law, I'm going to have war with Amalek. Then in 1 Samuel 15, we have this story 
of what happened with First Samuel 15. And this is a good story too because this tells why Saul was deposed. He was such a handsome king. So Samuel said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you over his people, over Israel. Now therefore heed the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish what Amalek did to Israel, how he laid wait for him on the way when he came up from Egypt. Now we didn't know that. That's not in Exodus, but he laid way for them when they were coming up from Egypt. And now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and do not spare them but kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul gathered the people together and numbered them in Telim, 200,000 foot soldiers, and this is just a few miles south of Beersheba, to, uh, and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to a city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites that were there, they were nomadic Midianites, from, they also came from Abraham. He said to the Kenites, Go depart, get down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness, you Kenites did, you showed kindness to all the children of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul attacked the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He also took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive, and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were unwilling to utterly destroy them. But everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. Now the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I certainly regret that I have set up Saul as king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried out to the Lord all night. Samuel was the prophet. So when Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, it was told Samuel, saying, Saul went up to Carmel, and indeed he set up a monument for himself, and has gone out on around, passed by, and gone down to Gilgal. Saul was so proud of it, he memorial Saul up. He probably written on it about what he'd done to Amalek. Then Samuel went to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. But Samuel said, What then is this bleating of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? And Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. Sounds so good, doesn't it? They spared them to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we've utterly destroyed. Then Samuel said to Saul, Be quiet, and I will tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said to him, Speak on. So Samuel said, Saul, when you were little in your own eyes, were you not head of the tribes of Israel? And did not I, the Lord, anoint you king of Israel? Before you thought you were so wonderful. And when you were little in your own eyes. Now the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they're consumed. Why then? Did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down on the spoil to do evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, But I have obeyed the voice of the Lord and gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me and brought back Agag, king of the Amalekites. I've utterly destroyed the Amalekites. 
But the people took her. We blame See, Eve did it. See, this is what humanity does. Blame somebody else. But the people took the plunder, sheep, oxen, the best of the things, which should have been utterly destroyed to sacrifice, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. Then Samuel said, now this is something you ought to remember always. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed, to listen to God, than the fat of rams. For rebellion, evidently that's exactly what God said, you're just a rebel. Rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft or divination, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you've rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And as Samuel turned around to go away, Saul seized the edge of his robe. See, Saul, you can see about how mad he was at David later on the anger that he had in, in his spirit. So anyway, he seized the edge of Samuel's robe and it tore. So Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And later on, even though Saul persecuted David and everything, he finally says, I know that you're gonna be king. I remember what Samuel said, I knew this. He said, and also the strength of Israel will not lie nor relent, for he is not a man that he should relent. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now, please, before the elders of my people and before Israel. Return with me that I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul worshiped the Lord. Then Samuel said, bring Agag, king of the Amalekites, here to me. And so Agag came to him cautiously. Dr. Ryrie said, the Hebrew is unclear. It may mean trembling or in fetters. Surely the bitterness of death, he said, is past, might better be translated. Now comes bitter death. He knew what was coming. So he said, he came cautiously. And Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past, but I'm going to have a bitter death. But Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag in pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house at Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel went no more to see Saul until the day of his death. Nevertheless, Samuel mourned for Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Then the next time we see him is in Esther, chapter 3. Because this is just the picture of the enemy, the Agags, down through history, hating the <coughs> Jews, hating Israel. So this is in the time of Esther, you know, the wonderful story. After these things, <coughs> King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. Now see, where was Agag? He came from Agag, the same one that was hacked to pieces by Saul. So Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, he advanced him. So the king of Persia advanced this Agagite, Haman, and set his seat above all the princes who were with him. And all the king's servants who were within the king's gate bowed and paid homage to Haman. 
and for so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai, this is Esther's uncle, the Jew, would not bow or pay homage. He wouldn't bow down. You know when they would bring the chariots by, they would have to say, honor them, you know, praise and bow before them. Now it happened when they spoke to him daily and he wouldn't listen to them that they told it to Haman to see whether Mordecai's words would stand for Mordecai had told them he was a Jew. It's the first time that they're called Jews in the book of Esther. They're called Hebrews before that or Israelites. When Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow or pay him homage, Haman was filled with wrath. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone for they had told him of the people of Mordecai. Instead, Haman sought, said, well, not just him, I'll kill all the Jews. Instead, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews who were throughout all the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, the people of Mordecai. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast poor Lot before Haman to discern the day and the month till it fell on the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there's a certain people scattered and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from all other people's, and they don't keep the king's laws. Therefore, it's not fitting for the king to let them remain. If it pleases the king, Haman said, let a decree be written that these Jews be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who do the work to bring it into the king's treasury. So the king took his signet ring from his hand, gave it to Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, you see why the book of Esther is in, in the Bible? To tell this story. And the king said to Haman, the money and the people are given to you to do with them and seemed good to you. Then the king's scribes were called on the 13th day of the first month, and a decree was written according uh, to all that Haman had commanded, to the king's satraps, to the governors over each province. Now, I guess there were 135 provinces, a huge, huge world empire. And to every people in their language, in the name of King Ahasuerus, it was written and sealed with the king's signet ring. And the letters were sent by couriers into all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, little children and women, in one day, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their possessions. A copy of the document was to be issued as law in every province, being published for all people that they should be ready for that day. So the couriers went out, hastened by the king's command, and the decree was proclaimed in Shushan, the citadel. So the king and Haman sat down to drink. But the city of Shushan was perplexed. When Mordecai learned of all that had happened, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, went out into the midst of the city. He cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went as far as the square up in front of the king's gate, for no one might enter the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. And in every province where the king's commander's de decree arrived, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. So Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her, and the queen was deeply distressed. Then she sent garments to clothe Mordecai and take his sackcloth away from him, but he wouldn't accept them. Then Esther called Hatak, one of the king's eunuchs, whom he had appointed to attend her, and she gave a command concerning Mordecai to learn why this was. So Hatak went out to Mordecai in the city square that was in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries to destroy the Jews. 
He also gave him a copy of the written decree for their destruction, which was given at Shushan, that he might show it to Esther and explain to her and that he might command her to go to the king to make supplication for him and plead before him for her people. So Hatak returned and told Esther the words of Mordecai. Then Esther spoke to Hatak and gave him a command for Mordecai. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that any man or woman who goes into the inner court of the king who has not been called, he has but one law put all to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter, that he may live. Yet I myself, Esther said, have not been called in to go to the king for thirty days. So they told Mordecai Esther's words. Then Mordecai told them to answer Esther, Do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to return this answer to Mordecai. Go, gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan, fast for me. Neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise, and so I will go to the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. And Mordecai went his way and did according to all that Esther commanded him. And so on the third day, Esther put on her royal robe, stood in the inner court of the king's palace, across from the king's house, where while the king sat on his royal throne in the royal house, facing the entrance of the house. So it was when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court that she found favor in his sight. And the king held out to Esther the golden scepter which was in his hand. Then Esther went near and touched the top of the scepter. And the king said to her, What do you wish, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you up to half my kingdom. So Esther answered, If it pleases the king, let the king and Haman come today to the banquet that I have prepared for them. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly, that he may do as Esther has said. So the king and Haman went into the banquet that Esther had prepared. At the banquet of wine, the king said to Esther, What is your petition? It shall be granted you. What is your request? Up to half my kingdom, it shall be done. Then Esther answered and said, My petition and request is this, if I found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, then let the king of, and Haman come to the banquet which I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. So Haman went out that day joyful and with a glad heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, and he didn't stand or tremble before him, he was filled with indignation against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and called for his friends and his wife Zeresh. Then Haman told them of his great riches. He told them of the multitude of his children, all the ways in which the king had promoted him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and servants of the king. Moreover, Haman said, Besides, Queen Esther invited no one but me to come in to the king to the banquet that she prepared, and tomorrow I am again invited by her along with the king. Yet all this avails me nothing, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife, Zeresh, and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows be made, fifty cubits high, and in the morning suggest to the king that Mordecai be hanged on it. Then go merrily with the king to the banquet. And the thing pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. The night, that night, though, the king could not sleep, 
So one was commanded to bring the book of the records of the chronicles <coughs> that they were read before the king. If anything, the, the notes of minutes will put you right to sleep, won't they? Mm -hmm. Have a meeting. <laughs> so the, it was found written that Mordecai had told of Big Thana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, the doorkeepers who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. Then the king said, What honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the king's servants who attended him said, Nothing's been done for him. And the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to suggest that the king hang Mordecai on the gallows that he had prepared for him. The king's servants said to him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king asked him, What shall be done for the man whom the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought in his heart, Well, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman answered the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let a royal robe be brought which the king has worn, and a horse on which the king is ridden, which has a royal crest placed on its head. Then let this robe and horse be delivered to the hand of one of the king's most noble princes, that he may array the man whom the king delights to honor. Then parade him on horseback through the city square and proclaim before him, Thus shall be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hasten, take the robe and the horse, and do as you have suggested. Do so for Mordecai the Jew who sits within the king's gate. Leave nothing undone of all that you have spoken. So Haman took the robe and the horse, arrayed Mordecai, and led him on horseback through the city square and proclaimed before him, Thus shall be done to the man the king delights to honor. Afterward, Mordecai went back to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house mourning with his head covered. When Haman told his wife Zeresh, all and all his friends, everything that had happened to him. His wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai before whom you've begun to fall is of Jewish descent, you will not prevail against him, but will surely fall before him. While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs came and hastened to bring Haman to the banquet which Esther had prepared. So the king and Haman went to dine with Queen Esther, and on the second day at the banquet of wine, the king again said to Esther, What is your petition, Queen Esther, and it shall be granted you, and what is your request? Up to half my kingdom it shall be done. Then Queen Esther answered and said, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given at my petition and my people at my request, for we've been sold, my people and I, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. Had we been sold as male and female slaves, I would have held my tongue, although the enemy could never compensate for the king's loss. Then King was answered and said to Queen Esther, Who is he? And where is he? Who would dare presume in his heart to do such a thing? And Esther said, The adversary and enemy is this wicked Haman. So Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. Then the king arose in his wrath from the banquet of wine and went into the palace garden. <clears throat> but Haman stood before Queen Esther, pleading for his life, for he saw that evil was determined against him by the king. And when the king returned from the palace garden to the place of the banquet of wine, Haman had fallen across the couch where Esther was. <laughs> and the king said, Will he also assault the queen while I'm in the house? As a word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Our Harbona, one of the eunuchs, said to the king, Look, the gallows, fifty feet high, which Haman made for Mordecai, who spoke good on the king's behalf, is standing in the house of Haman. Then the king said, Hang him on it. 
So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's wrath subsided. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, and Mordecai came before the king, and Esther had told how he was related to her. So the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, gave it to Mordecai, and Esther appointed Mordecai over the house of Haman. Now Esther again spoke to the king, fell down at his feet, implored him with tears to counteract the evil plot of Haman the Agagite and the scheme which he had devised against the Jews. And the king held out the golden scepter toward Esther. So Esther arose and stood before the king and said, If it pleases the king, if I have found favor in his sight and the thing uh, seems right to the king and I am pleasing in his eyes, let it be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman, the son of Hamadatha of the Agagite, which he wrote to annihilate the Jews who are in all the king's provinces. For how can I endure to see the evil that will come to my people? Or how can I endure to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and Mordecai the Jew, Indeed, I have given Esther the house of Haman. They've hanged him on the gallows because he tried to lay hands on the Jews. You yourselves write a decree for the Jews, as you please, in the king's name. Seal it with the signet ring. For a letter which is written in the king's name and sealed with a ring, no one can revoke. So the king's scribes were called at that time in the third month, which is the month of Seban, on the 23rd day, and it was written according to all that Mordecai commanded to the Jews, the satraps, the governors, the princes, the provinces of the provinces, from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces in all, to every province in its own script, to every people in their own language, and to the Jews in their own script and language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus, sealed it with the king's signet ring, and sent letters by couriers on horseback, riding on royal horses, bred from swift steeds. By these letters the king permitted the Jews who were in every city to gather together to protect their lives, to destroy, kill, annihilate all the forces of any people or province that would assault them, both little children, women, to plunder their possessions. In one day, all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, a copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province and published by all the people that all the Jews would be ready on that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. So this was a day Mordecai, Mordecai went out, the Jews had light and gladness, joy and honor, and on the day of the enemies of the Jews, uh, they over, the Jews overpowered them, and the Jews, um, the, the ones that hated them. And anyway, the, the book ends with Mordecai being number two under the king, and how he was you know, just not like, kind of like Joseph was raised to be head of Egypt. Mordecai was raised to be head of the, all of these provinces of, of Persia in his day. Well, that's a wonderful story, but notice this hatred. It went on because it went on down through to Haman and then to the Herods, and you know how they wanted to destroy the Jews. So Amalek came, and so Moses wanted him done away with, so Moses built an altar and called it, verse 15, the Lord is my banner. For he said, because the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. <laughs> Evidently, God is going to do this from generation to generation. So chapter 18 starts, and Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, that the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her back, 
and with her two sons, of whom the name of one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a stranger in a foreign land. And the name of the other was Eliezer, for he said, The God of my father was my help, and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness, where he was encamped at the mountain of God. Now what, what mountain is this? Horeb. That's at the Mount Sinai. So Horeb was in the wilderness. So when it talks about the wilderness, not the wilderness of, of the Sinai, where, you know, where usually people think it was, the wilderness where Mount Horeb was. And he said to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law, bowed down, kissed him, and they asked each other about their welfare, uh, well-being, and they went into the tent. And Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them on the way, and how the Lord had delivered them. Then Jethro rejoiced for the good which the Lord had done. Jethro is a Gentile, and Zipporah represents the Gentile bride of Moses. So we have a Gentile and the bride of Christ, and we have the Jewish person. And Dr. McIntosh says, is a millennial scene. He says, God has his grace visited, redeemed his people out of Egypt, then delivered them from Amalek. We've seen in the manna, Christ come down from heaven, in the rock, Jesus smitten, and in the gushing stream, a type of the Holy Spirit. Now, a picture of future glory. Chapter 8, future glory, divided into three departments, the Jew, the Gentile, and the church. Zipporah, a Gentile bride, Moses the Jew, and Jethro the Gentile. And I never thought of this before, but I got it from Dr. C.H. McIntosh. During the period of Israel's unbelief and of Christ's rejection, the church is called out. When the church is complete, then God will begin to deal with Israel again. And we'll talk about this more next time. About this one, this is millennium. When Jesus comes back, he will rule over both the Jew, the Gentile, and the church. So anyway, Jethro rejoiced for all the good. And Jethro said, verse 10, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh, who has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods, for in the very thing in which they behaved proudly, he was above them. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. And so it was on the next day that Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood before Moses from morning till evening. That's where we'll start next week. Lord, we thank you for this time together. But it ends uh, with this, this fight, this fight between Amalek and Moses, and then the picture after he wins about this millennial scene when Jesus comes back we just know and we're looking for him to come and set this thing up first has to be the tribulation a book of revelation when the Jews will be judged for their treatment of the Messiah but after that then Jesus will come back defeat his enemies set up his kingdom for a thousand years from Jerusalem and as Isaiah talks about People will come from every nation and language to worship the King of kings and Lord of lords in Jerusalem. 
And many times, like it will say, he many will take the skirt of a Jew and say, take me to where the Messiah is, where the King of Israel is, so I can worship him too. There will be universal worship of the King. Every knee will bow and every everyone will confess, every mouth will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So this is what's coming. And Lord, we look for that glorious day in Jesus' name. Amen. Any questions on this, except I wanted to show you some of these passages that bother you about hardness of heart. It's not only in the Old Testament, but Zechariah 7.12 is one. There are just so many. But in Dr. Rari's notes on the side, it mentions verse 12, turning the fast, and where it says, they refused to heed, shrugged their shoulders, stopped their ears. They wouldn't listen to the Lord. Yet they made their hearts like flint, refusing to hear the law and the words by which the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophet. This great wrath has come. Now then in Mark 6, 52, in Mark there's several places about Jesus feeding the 5,000 when he went in the boat, verse 50, they had not understood about the loaves because their heart was hardened. Now God didn't harden their heart. They hardened their own hearts and wouldn't listen to Jesus. Then Mark 3, 5. So when he had looked around at them with anger, being grieved at the hardness of their hearts. See, now then, the Jews, they'd watch him heal a man on the Sabbath with a withered hand. The legalistic, unbelieving Jews. There were believing Jews and unbelieving Jews in Jesus' day. And they said to the man who had the withered hand, step forward, and he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or do evil, to save life or to kill? So they kept silent. So when he had looked around at them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts, see, God didn't harden them. They hardened their own hearts. The hardness of their hearts, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored as whole as the other. Then there's Mark 6, 52. And then Mark 16, 14. At the end of Mark, after his resurrection, afterward, verse 14, he appeared to the eleven as they sat at the table, and he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart because they didn't believe those who had seen him after he had risen. They hardened their own hearts. God didn't make them hard. They hardened their own hearts. Romans 2, 5. Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance, but in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart? That's Romans 2, 5. You are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteousness of God. That's Romans 2, 5. And then if you look in all of these places, there are cross-references, other places in Isaiah, and so that you can just spend hours doing this. But I just wanted to bring those few things to show that God doesn't harden heart. Out of the hardened heart, he uses people you know, like Haman to accomplish what he wanted to do. Any questions on any of it?